Hello world and welcome to Boston University's 30 Under 30 podcast. I'm Crystal Castro from Buffalo, New York, and my co-host with the Soulful Voice is Julian Cook from Chicago. I'm a third year undergrad here at Boston University, and my co-host is a BU alum from BU's Howard Thurman Center for Common Ground. Boston University's 30 Under 30 podcast features a panel of the brightest Boston area scholars under the age of 30. The panelists represent a wide array of disciplines and specialties and offer insightful, relevant, and in-depth analysis of current events, politics, education, and community life, all within a 30-minute time frame. So good luck. We're recording before a live studio audience today. Today we're recording at the College of General Studies, and we want to talk about the misogyny that is sadly rampant in American culture, how men can adopt a healthy masculinity, as opposed to the toxic one most seem to ascribe, to try to get to a place where no one will ever have to say, me too, again. Also, we want to talk about how, how we can develop healthy relationships, friendships, romantic, platonic, in a me too era. With that, panelists, please introduce yourself so that people can get to know your voice. We'll start with Tim. My name is Tim Green. I graduated from BU in May. I'm 22 years old. And yeah, I'm, I graduated from BU in May. I'm 22 years old. And while I was at BU, I did a lot of student leadership. Um, I had a lot of student leadership roles, including I worked for the orientation office as a student advisor and later as a coordinator of programs. I worked at the dean of students office for a time. And I also did a lot of work uh, with the Sexual Assault Response and Prevention Center on campus, which uh, I imagine I'll refer to again, and I will refer to as SARP. Hi, I'm Sigourney Cook. I'm originally from Chicago. I graduated from Laundry School of Music of Bard College in 2016 with a master's in opera performance. I'm an opera singer. I'm also an educator. Uh, currently, I am teaching performing arts to sixth through eighth grade at Roxbury Prep Dorchester and I'm glad to be here. Hello everyone, I am Jonathan Allen. I am a Texas native in Louisiana, I guess resident we can call it, but I'm here in Boston now. I um, graduated from Grambling State University, undergrad and my master's in theological studies at Southern Methodist University in, in Dallas, and I am now a second year law student at Boston University. My name's Elise Bess Washington. I am from Washington State originally. I graduated from Gonzaga University as my undergrad. Um, I studied sociology and religious studies, and then I came to Boston University for the Master of Divinity program here at BU School of Theology. And right now, I work as a chaplain resident at Mass General Hospital. Hi, everyone. My name is Abel Kano. I'm originally from Boston, Massachusetts. We grew up in Hawaii and Indiana as well. I graduated from UMass Boston with a major in sociology and a minor in communications. And my background is as a community organizer. I started in high school in Boston against youth violence, went on to organize in the Latinx community, and then in electoral politics for many years. And what I do now is I'm founder and ED of the Arc of Change, which is a Boston-based leadership training organization developing community organizing capacity uh, amongst progressive groups. So I want to start with a trigger warning as this episode contains explicit themes of sexual assault and violence. Me Too is a recent movement that started because mainly predominantly white, hetero, cisgender female actresses in Hollywood came to name notorious producer Harvey Weinstein as a ruthless sexual predator. 
the movement gained traction on social media and is aimed at shining a spotlight on and stopping sexual assault. It is worth mentioning that women of color, heterosis gender, the LGBTQIA plus populations, elderly, persons with disabilities, and those whose English isn't their first language have been bravely coming forward with their own stories of survival against the sexual assaulters in their lives, but their voices were largely dismissed, forgotten, and or not even believed. This shows why intersectionality is so important when talking about all of these important issues like sexual assault. Fact, according to the CDC, one in five women and one in 71 men will be raped at some point in their lives. Fact, according to the Department of Justice, 91% of victims of rape and sexual assault are female and 9% are male. Certainly that's, that's a statistic that we should have some level of conversation about today. Uh, the definition of sexual assault according to the Department of Justice is that sexual assault is any type of sexual contact or behavior that occurs without the explicit consent of the recipient. It includes but is not limited to such activities as forced sexual intercourse, forcible sodomy, child molestation, incest, fondling, and attempted rape. So in the streets, women consider touching, catcalling, creepy staring, voyeurism, public masturbations, all as forms of sexual assault. Stalking also carries with it the implicit threat of sexual assault. Most types of sexual assault against females are symptoms of the root problem, misogyny. Misogyny is an intense, internalized, usually subconscious hatred and prejudice of women. When people are raised to believe in inherent male super superiority and never question or think to question these ingrained social cues, norms and values, they will practice this chauvinistic patriarchy and misogyny. And most times they do it unwitting, unwittingly or involuntarily. So it's definitely worth noting that this teaching of misogyny is usually not explicit. Mom and dad aren't gonna sit you down and say, hey, guys are better than girls but they can still perform this uh, belief in their actions when they give their sons a pass for the same things that they chastise their daughters for and so on. So uh, we're gonna to start today with the vocal artist, the singer, the performing artist, and that's, that's, that's apt because we're dealing with the Me Too movement which has largely rooted itself in the world of the arts. And Sigourney, you have spent extensive time performing around the world uh, and so the question for you with this hashtag MeToo moment and movement is, are women more susceptible to sexual violence in the performing arts community? And if so, what is it about the culture of the arts that has made the women in its confines so susceptible to harassment? In other words, what I'm asking you to talk about is uh, these specific ways or, or these specific qualities that exist within the structure and culture of the performing arts community that make getting away with sexual harassment easier and reporting it more difficult? Uh, thank you for that question. I find, and, I'm, and I, I still find, and have found that uh, there's a clear and uh, lack of female presence in the upper level management of the, of the arts much like most of the world. Um, and that just drives the exploitation of, of women. And um, it also justifies, in a way, um, just the patriarchal culture and the presence that um, these systems are controlled by. 
and I think that that's the the issue of um, sexual harassment, sexual violence, uh, primarily among women in the arts. So let me give you an, let me give you another example. This sure. was not with women uh, exclusively, but of course there's been great news about James Levine, mm. the former conductor at the Metropolitan Opera. Uh, we know now that James Levine has had this long and well-known history of sexual abuse and it's coming to the surface now. What is it in the culture of the arts that pushes folks in the higher levels to protect many of them who were uh, and have voiced and expressed the fact that they are appalled by his actions and were appalled then? What allows them to work so hard to protect James Levine? What is that? James Levine is one of the greatest conductors of um, the Metropolitan Opera's career, mm -hmm. and he's had such a long-standing career, and he's touched many different opera houses um, around the world and the country. So, in if you dismantle that legacy, then you're dismantling a lot of systems, mm -hmm. um, patriarchal systems, things that are they're driven by the white male and financial systems. That a, lot, a lot of the contributions to these um, arts programs, arts organizations are primarily financed by old money that come from the European um, heritage. Well, yeah. And, and James and Levine, James of Levine is uh, he is certainly a representative of that. and. There is a smaller number of male artists in the opera, opera world. That would also mean that you would lose some of these great voices, a lot of this great talent, and uh, yeah, you would be dismantling a whole culture. Absolutely. So we live in a patriarchal society, right? And um, misogyny is baked into American culture. Both men and women suffer from internalized misogyny and perpetuated into their social, personal, and work life. So what are some tips that you might have on how to get them to challenge their own subconscious misogyny in order to develop healthy relationships um, amongst their coworkers, amongst their friends, and romantic in interests? And this is open to, to everybody. I think it definitely helps to talk to the people in your community, to talk to your friends, your family. Um, I know we're talking about a lot of women experiencing sexual assault, so talking to the people right in front of you um, who are experiencing sexual assault. And I think that's also important because you're centering the people right in front of your face, the people that you see every day. And when you, while it's great to go and read a book or an article about that, and I would definitely encourage it, um, it can also feel like for those people, um, you went above and beyond outside of us to go and find out about what I'm dealing with or what we're dealing with. Um, so you personalize it um, when you talk to your friend or your sister or your cousin. Um, yeah, I think going within, you, within your community and talking to them and listening and really taking the time to listen and question yourself. I know that we were um, just talking about um, that we have to question why, whether we're getting in the way of asking the important questions. Um, and so be, be able to ask yourself, did I do some of this stuff? Um, and be able to confront that. 
we'll go with Tim and then we'll come back to you. Um, I think the I think the point of personalizing it is a really great one, and I think it, it ties in a little bit to uh, the question that was asked previously about why we uh, kind of rally to protect these people in positions of power who are accused of these things. And it reminded me of when Louis C.K. was outed, you know, the most publicly. He had been accused of these things many times in private before, but. I think it's because people's initial reactions a lot of the time are like, oh, I feel like I know this person. Um, and kind of implicit in that is, oh, I don't know these accusers. Like they're, you know, like they're someone that I can't trust. Um, and so to, I think, I think to personalize it, as you said, is the first step in really kind of like taking the veil off from your, you know, out from in front of your eyes and actually looking at the reality of these situations. I think for young men to uh, begin to heal and move toward a place of healthier masculinity, uh, what one thing that I think is required is radical compassion uh, for self and for other. And my mind goes back to where these seeds of toxic masculinity might have been sown. And I think of children who are young men, just like little girls who are uh, not only encouraged to experience and express certain kinds of emotions like anger, uh, hyper-competitiveness, uh, you know, not to express what they feel clearly, even to one another or even themselves. This idea of being a rock is really, uh, is really elevated. And so what happens is, from my perspective, by the time you're 12, 13 years old, 14 years old, uh, perhaps you've developed a pattern of not expressing yourself or feeling like you can't uh, be emotional. But what happens is that when you begin to express things like anger often, anger, in my opinion, is only a secondary emotion and beneath it rests hurt and sadness. And if you're not able to have the tools to look at that clearly and really express compassion toward yourself in dealing with that kind of uh, sadness and hurt that exists from not being able to be a whole human being as a child, then that might begin to manifest itself in aggression toward others and even toward yourself. And so I, I think that that pattern is one that really needs to be looked at. And it's, I don't think it's, um, I call it radical because it really requires inspecting and thinking you know, admitting, telling yourself the truth in a way that might not be easy and really looking inward to say, to challenge your own beliefs and to challenge where you might have learned them and to really try to experiment to practice different ways. And so I think it's a negotiation with self and other. And I think that these seeds are sown when, when, uh, when folks are very, very young, when we're all very young. Uh, Abel, I, I, wanna, I wanna continue to deal with what you said because you're pointing out something that is extremely important. We've heard it from Tim, we've heard it from Sigourney, and Elisa now from you. I, I want to take us back to the numbers that I reported from the Department of, of Justice from, from, their, from their survey. This idea that 91% of victims of rape, rape and sexual assault who report them, of course, are female. Uh, that seem, and, and, and men represent around 9%. That seems incredibly uh, unbelievable to me that in a culture where there is so much sexual violence that only 9% of men are experiencing sexual violence. Well, and, and the reason I want to attach that to your, to your statements in particular is, is there, first of all, do you believe that when you, when you hear that? And then is there a culture uh, of toxic masculinity that makes it more difficult for men to report instances of sexual violence? I, I believe... I believe the numbers from the female perspective are absolutely true. Sure. And I believe that perhaps the numbers from the men, male perspective might be low. And yeah. I think that uh, 
in my own experience, I've had conversations with men who have had experience of sexual assault that have never talked about it before. Uh, because there's a stigma that isn't limited to uh, expressing sexual assault, but even physical assault. You get assaulted as a young man, you probably won't talk about it unless people saw it. So the, again, that toxic masculinity affects um, uh, the ability to even express and be open about whatever you're feeling in addition to uh, those kinds of uh, you know, issues of assault. And so I think that, that that's challenging. Um, and I think that men really do need to get involved in this movement and really do need to take it seriously because the reality is, is that, that this kind of masculinity uh, creates uh, feelings of pain and hurt even within uh, male relationships with one another. Sure. To think that as a young man you can't even hug your father or hug your best friend or tell someone you love them. Those, that's pain, that's pain. And that needs to be resolved and healed. And I think part of the challenge is that to attack someone, there's an othering that happens because you stop seeing people as people and you see them as objects. And that's part of what I think creates opportunities for sexual assault, that mindset or that way of looking at people. And the reality is, is that if you don't even see your own emotions as real things, then practicing empathy for someone else's emotions becomes a very difficult thing to do. And I think that that's why that practice of, um, of of compassion is really important. And just to close on that point for myself is that I, I'm an organizer and that's my background and I think of leadership as the practice of enabling others to achieve shared purpose under conditions of uncertainty. And that for me is about the interaction of self, other, and action. And what I'm suggesting in part is that people really delve into the self, practice this compassion, but also that alone is an insufficient step. Sure. Because we need to do it in relationship with others and really be honest about uh, those we've hurt and, um, and those that, uh, that we've supported. And so, yeah, I think that's, that's a bit of a journey that, that everyone, well, that we can all be taking together. This, this is connected to your point, but also it moves us to, to the next question for Sigourney. But, but I really okay. want to ask you, a few years ago, and I will not say this recording artist's name, he's a man, a black man, because I don't want to attract attention to him personally, I want to attract attention to, to, to his circumstance in particular. But he made the statement during an interview on a very big network that he had had his first sexual experience when he was around somewhere around 12 years old. And it took several people to sort of get involved in the conversation to say, no, what you experienced at the hands of, a, of an older woman was actually rape. I mean, you experienced, you were 12, but this is not something to brag about. You were experiencing uh, at, at your age with an 18-year-old woman uh, what, what is called rape. That's, and that's the type of culture that I'm, that I'm sort of pinpointing. What do you have to say to that, uh, uh, Abel? And what do you have to say to that, Sigourney, when you're dealing with students? I think that the incentives or what it means to be um, a young man or what parts of the, of the, of the culture that we need to challenge. Sure. Um, when I was in middle school and high school, I think that um, the unhealthier parts of some of the dialogue was about um, being uh, you know, sexually intimate at a very young age and that in fact that was encouraged. And I think that there were some of us who um, you know, thought of that in different ways, but I think that for, for, for that to be the dominant culture, uh, you know, young boys might not see that as something that, as a moment in which they did not give consent or where something was wrong, but sure. instead as a moment of, of you know, being cool or you know, being accepted. And I think in the same way, getting into, uh, into physical altercations to be violent, in, the same, in that very same way, uh, getting into a fight and standing up for yourself 
might look cool rather than have it be something that shouldn't have had to happen in the first place if you were able to express yourself and have conversation and resolve it in other ways, that there are other pathways. And so I think in that same way, there are other pathways to have discussion and dialogue about these things. And you know, I think per perhaps part of it is awareness and I think part of it is culture. So Gordon, you're a teacher. What, what's, what are your students saying about Me Too? What are they saying about Time's Up at your, at your school in uh, Roxbury? What are they saying? Honestly, my students aren't speaking about it at all. And mm -hmm. I think that that's um, a failure on the education system. Um, we still don't know how to healthily, healthily speak to our children about sex. Mm -hmm. It's either don't do it because you'll get pregnant or you'll get an STD or don't do it because I don't want you doing it so young. You know, it has nothing to do with what sex means, um, uh, how it would make you feel, what the, or just what you think as a child, what you think you've seen, how you, how, how you think you're supposed to approach it. I think, um, I think we failed our children that way. We don't, we don't know how to speak about sex to them. Um, I, I think that's a, a great point um, because that's something that absolutely carries through. Like that's not just an, an issue that stays in when you're young and then when you're older, oh, and then you talk about sex and then you understand. Because um, I, I remember at SARC we had this program called Sex is Like Pizza where we talk about consent um, in terms of ordering a pizza together and the basic concept is like, you never end up just having a pizza that just one person wants mm -hmm. normally. You have this whole discussion and it doesn't make the pizza any less delicious when it arrives, you know? Um, so that kind of like discomfort with talking about sex definitely leads to some of the problems that we had, um, that we have. And I also want to touch on if, if it's all right, sure. the, this idea of toxic masculinity being bad for men, mm -hmm. I think is a really, um, I think it's really important to bring up, but I think it's uh, most important as a window to seeing that toxic masculinity exists, that you know a certain kind of masculinity can be bad, but it's mostly bad for women and non-binary people. Um, so just when we talk about like toxic masculinity and like, oh, it's like bad for men to not be able to talk about their feelings and stuff like that, um, that's mostly bad because it leads to them hurting other people and such huge ways. Um, yes, I just wanted to bring that. Your, your point is so important. And, and one of the things I want to ask, and I hope that others will, 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 will cash in on this point, is the Me, the Me Too movement without, without a doubt, as it should be, is largely focused on, these sort of, on the relationships of women to men uh, and men to women. It, it's been extremely heteronormative in this conversation. Has it, but, but, but one of the negative aspects I, I hear people talking about, particularly those who are in LGBTQIA identifying communities, they say that it has dangerously inculcated in some ways these, I, these notions of heteronormativity that make it, as you've said, more difficult for men uh, who do not, men or women who do not uh, go along with the binary to report issues of violence or to even think of themselves as having been sexually abused. What do you buy that? What do you think? I'm thinking of you in particular, Jonathan, as a legal scholar. What are you thinking? No, I, I think um, even beyond the law, um, that in, in, in practical terms, that, that is the experience sure. that people are having, that because of the society that exists and all of its complexities, there are some groups who are more marginalized than others, whose situations 
are more complex and tied up in identity issues um, than others and they are less likely to report instances and circumstances of sexual harassment and because of various constructs that do exist some people are not fed the information that helps them to identify that they're being sexually assaulted in the first place um, or experiencing sexual harassment. I know that exists certainly um, amongst black women. Um, we hear often of them having experiences that they did not even realize in the first place was sexual harassment. Right. I think that exists in our, in our communities and I think we need to be figuring out how we can further educate our communities, inform them about the range of ways in which they can be sexually harassed and assaulted. That is unwanted um, taunting but verbally, physically, um, unwanted touching or passes that somebody make it to you. It, it's, it's so broad and I, I think if we all take a moment and reflect, there may have been times where, where we could have been in that kind of predicament, either receiving it or even um, being the offender. Which is what makes the 9% so hard to believe, isn't it, when you hear that it is. the Department of Justice? Yeah, yeah, it, yeah it, makes, it makes it difficult to believe, and I, I think the number certainly is bigger. Yes. I, 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 I know for sure that it, it has to be bigger. Um, there are men being sexually harassed, and then when we think about gay men who experience sexual harassment, little boys that experience sexual harassment from men and women, right. um, I think the number is certainly bigger, but I think because of our society and its culture, men are not encouraged to admit when they have been submissive, when they have been taken advantage of to some degree. And we have to ask ourselves, where did that start? Uh, when, when did we start thinking that men were more powerful than women and that men, for some reason, could not express their feelings or that they, um, for some reason, would be, it would be shameful for them to express that someone has dominated them? And I think we have to think about the institutions that teach us theology. Um, to um, as a source um, because certainly in our churches we're taught of men being dominant when Eve ate of the apple God got mad and cursed her with having babies and feeling this pain right. and then told her that she is to desire her husband only and that he is to be her ruler sure. I mean, you know that, that that is an ideology that has then created a society and a structure and a system that um, um, that reflects and why we're here talking today. Very good, very good. Uh, I I, I want to come back to you, Jonathan. Uh, you you're a budding legal scholar. You're you're a budding legal scholar. You wouldn't say that because you're humble, right? But, <laughs> but, but you are, and uh, and you're and you're a legal professional to be. Uh, and, and we want and we want to we want to know because we're hearing a lot of people calling us to remember the importance of due process in this moment. Every time there's an allegation reported, due process becomes a major part of the, co of the conversation in this Me Too moment. Uh, what is the significance, you're, you're a lawyer, what is the significance and the role of due process in this important moment? And then I want you to go further. Is due process a social good or is it a necessary evil? I'll, I'll, I'll say this. Um, Before you do that, let me give let me give let me allow Crystal to give a vignette that will sort of concretize what I'm trying to what I'm trying to say. get it, Crystal. Okay, Jonathan. <laughs> so for for example, right? So many folks, as of late, excuse me, predominantly male, who always thought they were never guilty of sexual inappropriateness, are using what happened with Aziz Ansari as a cautionary tale and are battling their own cognitive dissonance right now. So they're saying something along the lines of. I'm afraid to even speak to a woman now, thanks to me too. 
I think that uh, I think that is an excuse. I do think, though, that it is something that we should be thinking about. I do think there are experiences where people might be extra careful um, about how they interact with people. I think that fear um, can really exist, but I do not think that that fear should be an excuse um, for why we don't engage this dialogue, for why we don't make an effort um, to contribute positively to our environments and to other people's lives. And so I do think it's an excuse, um, but I do think it's something we should be talking about and figuring out how we can address that fear that might exist in people's lives. Because we have seen different circumstances in our country where we've used fear um, to justify our lack of engagement in addressing certain issues in our, in our communities. So before you move to due process, I, I wanna ask you this. We, 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 I, I work every day with college students. And one of the things that I am hearing from a lot of college young men right now, whether, whether and I, I agree with you, I think much of it is an excuse. Mm -hmm. uh, what, but I'm hearing it a lot. They're saying, I'm afraid to engage in conversations with, with women. I don't know how to healthily flirt, in a mm -hmm. sense. I don't know how to healthily let someone know that I'm interested in them now. Mm -hmm. how do, what, would, what do you say to that person? I, I think we need to check ourselves. You know, if you have no intentions, of harming anybody, I think you need to keep living, right? I think who, I don't think that we need to let fear take over. I think it is about intent. I think that you, you should be aware, educate yourself. If there's a lack of education on your behalf around what might be sexual harassment, then you should make yourself aware. Sure. Um, but I think you should live your life and be respectful to other people. I think the bottom line is if you respect other people, don't do to people what you don't want them to do to you, then you might be okay. Um, you know, I think it'll be all, it'll be all right. And I think that is the way we should um, be thinking about it. But at least did you? Well, I was thinking about the if that you just said that if you think that um, there's lacking education on your end to, to go and study and get that education. And I want to add to that that um, you can't worry to be worried about your if because there's a lot of things that we we think we know and yeah. then we think we're done with our education. Absolutely. So I guess what I was thinking is you're never done learning. Keep mm -hmm. going to more conversations. Keep reading. Keep paying attention to what other people are saying because you think you're done. You think you're mm -hmm. like a woman scholar, a feminist scholar, Absolutely. and there's more. There's always more.